0: In our text that was read a few moments ago Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ the good news that Jesus died on the cross that he was buried and that God raised him from the dead there have always been critics of preaching the cross of Christ. That's why it's important for Paul to point out that he's not ashamed of it. We talked about some of those critics this morning from the very beginning. Paul writes about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. To Greeks, it was foolishness. But Paul calls it there the wisdom and the power of God. Similarly, here in our text, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The cross is a place of power. This connection between the cross and power is one that I think is fascinating because we're so familiar with The story of the cross that I'm not sure we appreciate this. I don't know that the concept of a crucified Christ brings power to our minds. Think about it. When you think of power, what do you think of? We've seen uh, volcanic eruptions recently in Hawaii. Do you think of something like that? a volcano and all the pressure that builds up there pushing up hot lava from beneath the crust of the earth? Or do you think about a a jet streaking across the sky faster than the speed of sound? Do you think of a rocket taking a journey into outer space? Do you think of the authority of kings and presidents and the rule of law? Whatever it is, whatever you do think of, It's nothing like the cross. Who in the world would think of a dying, defeated man in the dark as power? I think we need to recover the idea of Jesus as a powerful figure. You look at the way artists typically portray Jesus, and it's anything but powerful. He's anemic, he's weak, even effeminate in a lot of cases, to be frank. Jesus is pictured as love and mercy and compassion, and all of those things are true. We don't need to lose sight of that. But sometimes I worry that we've just about had an overdose of this gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We need balance. We need to remember the full picture of who Jesus is. Think about the Christ of the Gospels. Picture Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. The man who walked everywhere that he went. He's suntanned. He's hardened. He's a man who went into the temple and overturned the money changers' tables. Picture that strength there. And oh, by the way, they were afraid of him. So he must have been a a physically intimidating fellow to at least some degree. We need to remember the Christ who was the Son of God, the one who existed in the beginning with God. It's what John says in the prologue to his gospel, beginning in verse number 2 of John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, Paul sounds a a similar note here. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15 That last line is particularly important. Because Paul sounds that same note that John does, that all things were made by him, without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says effectively that same thing. All things were created through him and for him. Then he says, in him all things consist, or all things, as the ESV says, hold together. That is, Jesus not only created everything, brought it into existence in the beginning. But it's by the word of His power that everything continues to exist. The only reason any of this is still here is because He wills it. And now think of what a ridiculous idea all of that is. Jesus, fellow from Nazareth, the carpenter... He has brothers and sisters, doesn't he? You mean the guy that was put to death by the Romans? And you can imagine these Colossian Christians, or anyone else who comes across this, can you imagine saying to Paul, what what in the world are you talking about? But of course, Paul would remind them that they're only thinking of the human side of Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was God poured out into the form of a human being, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Oh, he had power. The power of God. So why would Jesus, with all of his power, allow himself to be put to death? How could a handful of Jewish agitators take his life. Didn't he have the power to stop them if he wanted to? Couldn't he have overthrown his enemies if he'd chosen to? Of course he could have. He absolutely had that power. One word from him and Pilate would have been destroyed. One gesture from his hand and Herod's proud rule would have been brought to an immediate end. Jesus himself says that if he wanted to, he could call to his Father and he'd send down 12 legions of angels right then and there, and they'd take control. But if we think of power only in those terms of brute force, raw for might, then we're really forgetting or misunderstanding what power actually is. Power is simply the ability to accomplish a desired goal or a purpose. What's the purpose of God in sending Christ? It's the redemption of the world. It's to buy back, to redeem human beings from the bondage of sin. And instead, God wants them to willingly accept the bondage of love. Paul writes about that at length in Romans chapter 6, that we're all either slaves of sin that leads to death or we're slaves of obedience that leads to righteousness. And God wants us to reject that slavery of sin. He's purchased us from it and to instead willingly accept that yoke that He wants to place upon us. So in that light, what good would it have done to overthrow a Pilate, or a Herod, or a Caesar, for that matter? What would have been accomplished by putting the Romans to flight? Well, that would have been a show of force, of brute strength, for sure. But that's not power, because remember, power works for a purpose— And that would have had nothing to do with accomplishing God's purpose. The purpose was redemption. And that wouldn't have redeemed anyone. But there is power in the scheme of redemption. And that power is in the suffering love of Jesus. It's the power of love that goes on loving and loving and loving that as we said this morning reaches out and loves those who are even unlovable and unloving lovely it's the love that suffers but doesn't seek vengeance or reprisal that's the power that brings about redemption that's the power that wins people's allegiance That's the power that brings victory over sin and over death. That's the power of the cross. The power of the cross is in God's suffering love. It's okay. (laughs) happens to me sometimes. At the cross, we see God's suffering love. We see that power demonstrated most fully, most completely. John 3, verse 16, there's a passage everyone in here knows. For God so loved the world. That so means in this manner or in this way. How did He demonstrate that love? He gave His one and only Son. You see, we know God's love. We know that abstractly. But it's only at the cross that we see the full depth of His love. That's where He demonstrates it. That's where He shows it. And when we see the suffering, the anguish, the humiliation, well, then we see just how much God loved humanity because of that price He was willing to pay. John writes about this, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. And he says there, this is love. Not in that we loved God, but in that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sending His Son into the world shows God's love for us. Paul writes about that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So at the cross we see the love of the Father, and at the cross the love of the Son is declared. He loved me and He gave Himself for me, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. To go back to Romans 5, the the greatest manifestation of love is to die for someone else. And Paul says there that most people wouldn't be willing to die for anyone, but, you know, maybe for a good person, some people would dare to die. But Christ died for his enemies. We were fighting against God, and he still died for us. So those nail prints in his hand, are everlasting monuments of his love. A love that led him to sacrifice himself at Calvary. R. A. Torrey was a well-known preacher of the late 19th century, and he served as the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. One day he received a letter from a distressed father. The father was a preacher and he had a son, Bill, prodigal son. The boy was always breaking his heart. Imagine that, a preacher's kid going astray. That never happens, right? It's cuz they're always hanging out with the deacons' kids. They're they're bad influences. This man wanted Dr. Torrey to enroll his son at Moody. And Torrey wrote back that while he sympathized, it was just out of the question. They weren't a reformatory. They're a Bible college. That's not what they're in the business of doing. But the man persisted. He wrote back, and he entreated Torrey to please allow him to do it. And so finally, he relented. He allowed the young man to come to the college. He laid down some very strict rules, and he had to meet with Tori every single day. And for a while, it seemed like this was not going to end well at all. It seemed like the experiment was a failure. But the boy did at least keep the rules. And he met with Dr. Tory every day, and he vented his frustrations about everything that was going on in his life. He listened to the answers, and it seemed that, eventually, those evidently had an effect on him. In 1895, Bill, now 27 years old and with his doctorate, known as Dr. William R. Newell, returned to the Moody Bible Institute, now as a professor. He was embarking on a several decades long tenure there. And as he did so, he began to reflect on those years he'd spent as a wayward son. He was taking up that position and he started to think back to his conversion, rolling it over in his mind every day for weeks. And one day, as he was heading to class, he hit upon wording that seemed to him to be really special, and he didn't want to lose it. You know how things can just go out of your head if you don't write them down immediately. So he ducked into a spare classroom, and he he wrote it down quickly before it left his brain. Heading to class then, he happened to run into Dr. Daniel Towner, who was the college's director of music. And he handed off the lyrics to him, and he said, here, these These might go well with a melody if you can come up with one. Well, Towner took it, and he actually wrote music to those words within an hour. By the time that Newell had finished his lecture, the hymn was complete. Dr. Towner said that he was so taken with the poem that he thought it wasn't possible for either of them to ever write a better song. Dr. Newell felt that the secret to the song were all of those years that he'd spent wandering. The years he spent in vanity and pride. And if it weren't for that, he would never have been able to appreciate the cross of Calvary. We want to sing that song now. the power of the cross, the gospel that we proclaim, is the suffering love of God. And I want to be able, just like Paul, to proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to stand behind the cross of Christ and proclaim to the world a suffering Savior. Because... It's at the cross that we see power unlike anything the world has ever known. Power of God's love. Power of a love that entreats, never bullies. Of a Lord who stands at the door and who knocks, but who never breaks it down. The love that goes on loving and loving. Loving. Until there's nothing we can do but surrender to it. The question tonight is whether or not you've been living in rebellion to that power. Do you need to make changes in your life? Do you need to surrender to that power of God this evening? It's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.